Hello and welcome to Dinesh Guarda, Cities ABC Open Business Council YouTube podcast series. We are here together to continue profiling and uh, talking with some of the most interesting people in the world, with people that are changing the way we communicate, the way we deal with our challenges and as well with our opportunities, with our problems, and especially people that have a strong way and a strong voice of talking about what they feel, how they see the world and how can make it a better place. Um, and today is, we're going to be uh, profiling a couple of areas that I'm quite passionate and um, I welcome to our series today, Eric Yaverbaum, and I hope I pronounced it correctly. Yeah, so Eric- did it yeah, perfect. Okay, thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I will start with a, a bio of Eric. So Eric uh, has a fantastic profile and it really touched a lot of areas. So I'll go uh, a bit of a summary. So he's the CEO of Erico Communications, that is a communications media and public relations expert uh, agency. Uh, Eric has an experience of over 40 years in the industry, having co-founded Jericho Communications and served as a president from 1985 until its successful sale in 2006. And he's been working with a wide range of top of uh, client industries, including brands like Sony, Ikea, Progressive Insurance, Domino's, Beachbody, H&M, and fitness guru Jack Lalane. Eric is also, is also a best-selling author who literally wrote some of the major books, especially in some areas like uh, in public relations, the industry standard bestseller, public relations for dummies, which I recommend to everyone that wants to get into the industry. And as well, six other titles, including, including uh, Leadership Secrets of the World's Most Successful CEOs, which is a very important one as well, and that's been sold, selling millions of copies. He's a regular TV pundit, and his expert commentary has been featured in the major media and uh, digital platforms worldwide, from Forbes to Entrepreneur, The Washington Post, The New York Times, F Post, CNBC, MC, NBC, and a lot of others. And uh, I want to touch, especially today, we're going to be talking as well as some of the work that Eric has been doing in terms of the topics of uh, our brands and pride and so I'm, I will touch special this because I'm particularly interested to touch this as well. Brands and pride and why so many get it wrong and tokenizing the LGBTQ plus community. I think this is quite interesting. And uh, I want to, of course, start by the basics. I think I could read much more about you, but I think these achievements speak for themselves. So Eric, I, I want to start, first of all, how this all started. So first of all, how you start as a writer, how you got into PR and communications. Now you build all of these different things. And uh, one big accident when I was a kid. Um, uh, it was uh, uh, summer after my freshman year of college, and I wanted to get an internship, but I needed to get paid because I needed to, you know, pay for food and rent sort of stuff. Uh, it, I, I went around, did these standard interviews like, you know, everybody does. Uh, I got an offer from the Baltimore Orioles they didn't, they were to pay me nothing. And Matthew Lesko. Matthew Lesko at the time had not written a single book. He uh, was about to publish uh, what was literally a cut and paste of the catalog of federal domestic assistance. It was called Getting Yours, The Complete Guide to Government Money. Penguin was doing it. He only printed 5,000 copies of it, which does not make a bestseller. Uh, I said to Matthew, hey, Matthew, you know, any, I'm looking for a job. I, for me, Growing up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, this was like a star. He was an author. I thought, wow, this is so cool. I can, you know, meet somebody famous. 
uh, I said, if you know anybody, I'm looking for a job. He called me back the next day and he said, you know what? I had my first book coming out and Matthew's written hundreds of books uh, and he is a New York Times bestselling uh, author. Uh, said, I'll pay you $100 a week to represent my first book. And I said, I, I have no idea how to do that. And Matthew said, well, you know, neither do I, so we'll learn together. Uh, his first book, and Matthew literally was the first adult to completely trust a kid. I was 19 years old at the time. Uh, that book was a number one New York Times bestseller, floored the publishing world because it wasn't even, a, it was a, literally a cut and paste of a federal document uh, that was a number one New York Times bestseller. I ended, Matthew ended up hiring me full time. This is all while I was in college, which I mostly did in the evenings after work. Uh, his third book was a book called Information USA. Information USA changed the entire way books were marketed in this country. And this is in the early 80s. It was the first $20 trade paperback in the history of the New York Times to make the list. Conventional logic, which I've never subscribed to, uh, was that a book that cost $20, it could never sell in volume. There, there, it, it would be impossible. And I would walk into rooms in the publishing houses and everybody would say, ah, the kid, the kid doesn't know what he's talking about. Let's do, we'll, we'll do it the same way we always did. Matthew was not so inclined. He let me do whatever I wanted to do. And uh, many, many years later, and, and, and that book went on to become a New York Times bestseller. First one ever in, uh, in, in the trade history of the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, we would read in uh, articles, and I worked for Matthew for, until I finished college. Um, uh, articles about me that would talk about, and, and Matthew would literally look up at me and say, it says you're an out of the box thinker. Do you, do you even know there is a box? And no, I didn't know there was a box. And that was an asset, and which I pontificate a lot about today. I still feel like 40 years later, I still, uh, I don't want to know about the box. That's the, the, the blessing and the curse, I guess, of, of PR for Dummies, which was a big seller, which I did twice, was my box became the box for an entire industry. It's required reading in, I think, 52 universities ac uh, across the United States. So kids actually learn about the box that I made up so that I got to keep making up new boxes. I'm very blissfully still, as an adult, unaware of whatever the rules are, um, everything, I, I, I've been participatory in history before it happens. I'm a repeat offender at uh, the most magnificent stories, uh, not just commercial successes, not just the you know, widgets selling for Sony or whomever, uh, administrations, politicians, uh, tr dietary trends. I mean, I can go on and on and on. Every year I have something that becomes, you know, part of pop culture or a phenomenon. And I always see it and know it in advance. And every single solitary plan, bar none, is different from anything that I've ever done in any, in any other industry. I did run a conventional uh, PR agency, uh, which I started uh, after uh, my experience with Matthew and, and one uh, brief uh, agonizing failure <laughs> in corporate America. I ran the, the uh, PR department of a tech company in uh, Toronto that was way before its time, um, which lasted a year. And I moved back to Washington, D.C., started a, a PR firm out of my fledgling uh, uh, brownstone um, on Capitol Hill. 
and we had three clients. Um, uh, one of them uh, was a guy named Ken Hakuda. Ken Hakuda had a product called the Wacky Wall Walker, um, uh, which became one of the greatest selling fads of all times. We, we sold hundreds of millions of them. Uh, it was the most successful uh, promotion, at, at, at least as I last know, know of it, um, in Kellogg's pre-suite history. Wacky Wall Walkers went into cereal. Everybody wanted them. Um, and the, the Washington Post, which was the first uh, publication to write a big story about the Wacky Wall Walkers, called it the next pet rock. And literally, it became the next pet rock overnight. The same exact day, Dan Rather called my offices uh, from CBS Evening News. Uh, after Ken appeared on CBS Evening News, we sold the entire inventory the next day. You couldn't get through to Ken on the phone. I drove over to his house. He lived in D.C. at the time. I still do work with the family, his family, for years. I'm doing maybe the greatest project of my career right now with uh, uh, one of his sons. Um, I drove over to his house. And there's a big stretch limousine parked out in front of the house, and which I found quizzical. I'm getting out of my car. I'm just going to see Ken. I, I didn't. I, I don't know anything that's happened, let alone the entire. You can't get wall walkers out of the blue overnight. Uh, and the window rolls down of the limo that's parked out in front of his home. It's Malcolm Forbes, and Malcolm Forbes says, "Oh, do you know him?" I say, "Well, yeah, we're friends. He's my client." He said, I, "I'm here." He wanted to get wall walkers. For his grandchildren, you couldn't get them anywhere. That was the morning after CBS Evening News. The impossible, quote unquote, happened. Uh, the entire inventory, it, it, it sold more than Pet Rock, Hula Hoop, Slinky, Frisbee, overnight. Um, and uh, we represented Ken and multiple endeavors that he did over the course of decades uh, as a result of that success, that particular day, uh, which was 89 days in the making um, and supposed to be impossible. And in my youthful brain, I didn't, I didn't know about impossible. I didn't know there was such a thing as a mountain that was too high to climb. And I, I would have to say that, you know, I've raised uh, generations of, of PR practitioners and communication specialists who think exactly like me. There, there is no such thing as impossible. If it can't be done, I definitely am interested. Wow, I love, I love the story and I love your energy. And I think especially it's beautiful because it's interesting that um, I know I was not so lucky to find probably mentors like you because that's a mentor that changed your life and someone very special. Oh, well, I have to say that my whole career is... Uh, uh, I have to say thank you to my mentors. My first men mentor was Henry Kissinger. And Kissinger said to me, and I, and I have taught this for 40 years in media training. Kissinger said to me, um, and, and I'm still a kid too, and he's Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State, you know, worked in the Nixon administration, said to me that he used to go out in front of the White House press corps during Watergate, which is the first time really that a uh, a, the press had gone after a sitting U.S. president, and he would say, he would walk up to the podium and say, anybody have any questions for the answers I'm already giving? And I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. That's all, and, and, and that has, is what has become known as messaging in my industry, which I teach. Learned it from Henry Kissinger, my first, well, my second mentor. Um, my first mentor introduced me to Henry Kissinger. 
and it, you know, modern day politicians, that's what the, literally what they do. They don't care about the questions. They will, an, they will answer and bridge to the message and the message is what, that's what we'll hear. Not what the question necessarily was. It's all about messaging. And, it, you know, fascinatingly uh, enough, many years later, I became friends with Bob Woodward, who was the Washington Post writer who broke the Watergate story. And I said, hey, Bob, is that true? Did, did, did Kissinger really walk out in front of all? I mean, this is the most brilliant, you know, press in the country. They're covering the White House or the White House press corps. Did he really walk out in front of all of you and say, does anybody have any? So that's literally, that's just, that was his sentence. We all knew. It didn't matter what our questions were. Henry had his answers already that he would be saying no matter what the questions were. And if you watch modern day politics, which is, you know, somewhat of a shame. Uh, the questions uh, that we're asking are never answered, but I took the application um, and, and, and Henry Kissinger's lessons and applied them to everything that I do successfully. It's really impressive. Well, first of all, that's, that's two people that changed the 20th century, but it's great to look at, to look at this. So I want to touch that because that is something that I, I, in the end of the day, I'm actually getting mentors now that I'm a bit older, but I was mentored to a lot of people as a teacher in business schools. And as well, one of the things that I always like is the idea of getting young people to work with the platform, which is a very important thing, especially and now it's, it's quite tricky with COVID as well. But I want to touch that because I love two things you mentioned in the, your first preamble of your career was that no mountains are impossible, which I love. It's kind of, I probably will do that my mantra as well in terms of language. Uh, and I think it's really important. So how did you... First of all, I would like to go to the nitty-gritty because, of course, PR is it's a massive thing and there's been always a massive thing from the empires, from Roman Empire to now. The PR has been always having different names, different things. But, of course, you've been formatting that, especially the way your book and the books that have been associated. So can you tell us a bit about that work and how do you see PR and the, all the oh, different... Yeah. It, 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 look, uh, yeah, I'm, around, I'm no longer the kid in the room. Now I'm the old guy in the room. Yeah. Um, I sold my first agency, which was a traditional PR agency, before I started the one that I'm running now, um, which I am loving. I do not consider this working for a living. I love what I do. And that's what everybody should do. You're a kid. Find something that you love. Don't, don't work for a living. You don't have to. Find something. If you're passionate about it, it's not work. I, am so, uh, I have 15 years of, of a run here uh, doing extraordinary work that I absolutely love. Uh, it's not work. It's, it's a passion. Uh, when I sold my first traditional agency, I sold to Wall Street, which I had zero experience working for. And I went to be a managing partner, uh, you know, in, in a Wall Street holding company uh, and learned a lot. Uh, nothing that I, I, I thought it was great the first day. I was like, wow, look at my office. Who's giving me my paychecks. I have all this money out of the blue because I had sold my agent not out of the blue. It was 20 years in the making. Uh, and the offices were nice. I had thousands of people that worked for me. I, I'm good with hundreds. Thousands was a different league for me. And so was Wall Street and Wall Street's expectations and my role. And uh, one of the things that you have to do, or I, I had to do, it's probably, I'm sure it's standard, is present my business plan in my second year. My business plan was all predicated on the proliferation of digital and social media. This was long before digital and social media. I knew that information dissemination was gonna change. I knew the ground was already shaking under our feet. 
a jury of my peers, and I say a jury of my peers because it was people that were my age. I was in my 40s at the time. Um, uh, after my presentation, which I thought was absolutely brilliant, and you know, I was one step ahead of the world in information dissemination, everybody shook their head and said, nah, that's never happening. And I said, that's never happening. I literally said in that presentation, somebody will tweet their way into the White House, somebody will lose a presidential election because their emails, I, all, everything that happened. Um, uh, they said no. And I knew that if I stuck around, which I, I could have done, I, I could have been done. I had a very nice payday. I got a very nice paycheck every other week. I didn't have to do anything again in my life. I knew I would be irrelevant in the, in the profession that I love so much. So I left. I left and I started the agency that I run now. We have literally, I don't know, you know, we climb at least one mountain a year that we're not supposed to be able to climb. Uh, we're involved in projects that change the trajectory of history. Uh, in between, you know, I've written, uh, I'm writing my eighth book right now um, on leadership, on public relations. Uh, in between, I, I worked on the, uh, in between leaving and starting the agency that I'm running now, I worked on the transition team uh, between Bush and Obama, which was incredibly insightful, also something I didn't want to do. And I'm just loving what I do now. Show me, show me a really high, I, I, I don't think you're going to get any higher of a mountain than the one I'm climbing up right now, but I'm game if you got one. I don't know what to say. It's really amazing. So, so what, so from someone that went through some of these uh, biggest organizations in the planet and work on these different things. So I want to touch first this, how do you see the, like you mentioned, someone that tweeted to the White House, we had that. <laughs> the email was before. And of course now we have the social media and the blockchain and the crypto and the tokenization as well. So yeah. It, there's, a, there's an interesting thing which for me was impossible to miss. Uh, you know, I'm a news junkie. Um, and in, in my old office, I, I had eight television screens on the wall. That's what I faced. I watched every network. And then I had a bunch of screens, which I do, you know, on this desk now. I still work that way. Um, and I saw on uh, Twitter a picture of Captain Sully had landed that plane in the Hudson. I saw a picture of all these people standing out on the wing. I was like, Wow. Eight minutes later, I see it on CNN, eight minutes later, I knew at that moment that, that Twitter was going to be a match that lit up a news cycle. And it, look what happened with Twitter. And, you know, not TikTok, Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, you, there's so many more to come. It's just a different landscape now, clearly obviously you want to be a part of pop culture you want to be influential and change the way the next generation's going to think it's not just going to be you know being on the cover of rolling stone anymore or being i don't know as a kid i was on the, i was on the cover of usa today i thought that was it oh, whew, i'm done i'm on the cover of usa today time magazine wrote about me well what more could i possibly want much more and uh, the way that we influence the next generation is very very different uh, I still read an actual newspaper. I like that. I still, you know, get the, the, the from the New York Times, I get that ink on my hands, because still, I like the, the newspaper, but it's just one uh, way that I get my information. I, I believe in surround sound. If you want to get 
accurate information. You pick and choose who you want to get your information from, and then you decide what you think is accurate and what's not. And, and that we see, so I think with these three, I think we can pick your books and read it. Of course, I want to touch that. But I want to just ask, so we are in the neurologic point where, and you touched for instance, TikTok, where artificial intelligence is starting to mix with the, well, it's already mixed in the last 10 years, but especially right now, for instance, as just an example, I was, I was trying to do something and my team could not deliver it. So I started researching tools online and I find an AI tool that did in five minutes what my team of 10 people could not do in, in days or weeks. Yeah. And um, of course, this is going to have a massive stuff, but especially on PR, this is going to be, and of course, the last presidential elections was actually manipulated in a lot of different ways and we're not, I don't want to go into politics, but how do you see this neurologic point? Because I think right now this can go really in a kind of, if you use film, um, a bit of Blade Runner or a bit more Star Trek that is more positive. So how do you see this, especially someone that has been on so much high profile PR and communication campaigns and as well strategies? Well, the thing about, uh, you know, information is, is that while the new world is going to throw out the old world way of information, when I'm in a magazine or I'm in a newspaper, it ripples all over the internet. It's the same for my clients. Like if you don't want to be in USA Today or you don't want to be in the Wall Street Journal, you know, to me, it's short-sighted because when you are, uh, like I have, I have a piece coming out in USA Today, it will literally be a boomerang all over the internet for, you know, 24 hours. So I'll, I will see it forever. And, you know, uh, I, I always quote Churchill, history will be kind to me for I intend to write it. Google me. You won't believe it. I mean, the only person who does it is my mom, but you won't believe it. It, I mean, I was in Forbes yesterday. It, 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 part of that is control. Part of it is because publications are actually interested in my perspective, my point of reference. But I'm in Forbes. It ripples all over the place. I, I, God knows how many calls I got today um, or yesterday uh, from that. It, not because I was, you know, uh, look, I was also one of the original Huffington Post bloggers. Uh, that was a big deal. Uh, I was cutting edge when I was doing that. Nobody was like, what's a blogger? It's like something you should be thinking about. And also goes back, you know, over a decade ago. Uh, I think that it, so information is coming from a variety of sources, old school, new school. I say the magic is in the gray zone where they where they collide, you know, that's where viral actually happens. You know, unless you can TikTok and sing and dance, which I can't do either. Uh, but, you know, now we come into a world where we got artificial intelligence developing at warp speed, literally, because it's feeding upon itself. Blockchain technology, which is not really understood by so many people. Decentralized currency. Decentralized, I'm very bullish on decentralized currency. I don't know which one it's going to be, but if there, there will be decentralized currency. I'm very bullish on blockchain. I think that blockchain will change all sorts of things that we do. And I'm a little worried about artificial intelligence. And I'm a little worried about my cell phone. Um, because when I get up in the morning, my cell phone tells me it's raining on the route that you're taking and take a different route. I'm saying, how do you even know where I'm going? Yeah, listen to this song because you love this song. And by the way, did you see this, you know, sweatshirt? Uh, everything. And my phone literally and technology is directing me 
from information that it's collecting. There's something called, uh, which everybody should be aware of. If you want to be participatory, you got a cell phone, you're already participating. You know, you might not know it. As soon as you download an app and you check terms and conditions, you have opted in for giving away everything. As soon as you check the box, very few people, if any, read terms and conditions because I just want my whatever app. I'm not reading all those pages. I'm not a lawyer. Um, not to mention, it's too many pages to read. I don't, I, don't, I don't like reading. I didn't like reading bills in Congress. I don't like reading contracts that I'm involved in. I don't, I'm definitely not reading terms and conditions. I check the box. I give away everything when I check that box. So your privacy is very much up for grabs which is fine for convenience as long as you know that's what the trade-off is. So the trade-off definitely flows into artificial intelligence. What my phone, what my devices will know about me means that, and I've always said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. I don't care, go right, go left, take it, based on what you know. Your phone and technology now is pulling you in a different direction because they know the direction technology does, this is artificial intelligence, of which direction I'm predisposed to go into, which means that I'm gonna keep buying a, a certain soap because I'm predisposed, means I'm all sorts of ramifications for that. So, you know, I do think that people ought to be uh, cautious um, and aware of, it still should be up to us. Technology should not use us, we should use technology. We're very close to an inflection point where the technology is using us. We're not using the technology. This is a tool for me. I'm not a tool for it. But that is the direction that the wind is blowing. Yeah, and then this is becomes more powerful when it comes to PR. So you mentioned, I want to touch two things. So in your book, PR, of course, you, you create a wave of understanding. First, the importance of PR, because of course, PR it's been always, at least until the internet, has been much more something that only politicians or big corporations could afford and, and work. But now everyone is partly, and your book was partly successful, besides other reasons, but as well, you democratize the importance of PR and understanding of PR. So my second thing is, how do you see that and the things you just mentioned when it comes to leadership? So your book about leadership as well, and you interview some of the top CEOs of the 20th century, and as well, personalities that have been on this, so I think right now leadership is with machines, like we just said, both personal leadership and uh, corporate leadership. But the PR is more important than ever because um, the way we deal with our privacy, with our private lives, with our whatever uh, interests we have in our life, sexual, whatever the stuff, this has consequences. And for instance, I love to, to use, for instance, Yuval uh, Noah Harari. Uh, one of the things he, he says, a lot of times, and I think it's quite interesting, he only discovered, for instance, there was gay quite old. And one of the things that uh, he says that is, I completely understand, especially working in AI, is that at the moment, someone that probably still didn't even discover his own orientations will start having based on instinctive of things that because the AI knows what the person probably wants. This is going to create a lot of ripples of effect, both for personal developing and leadership but special for big organizations. And it brings as well a lot of the importance of wellness. So it's a lot of questions I'm putting here in the brief way, but your books are big and your articles as well. How do you look at this specifically from the leadership perspective and the angle of public relations uh, as well? Is, uh, yeah. You know, I was, as a kid, I was so uh, fascinated by leaders and in part in, in a greedy way, because I thought, wow, I, I, 
my agency, I got a whole big agency. We report to the director of marketing who reports to the, you know, senior director of marketing who reports to the vice president of marketing who reports to the senior vice president before they ever get into the C-suite, before you ever see the CEO. I want to be in the room with the CEO, but I'm not. I'm the PR guy. PR guys, we're not at the table. I'm at the table. Um, and the thing about the table is if you sit at the winner's table, the conversation is very different there. And you can have a lot of influence there. Uh, my, my lifelong fascination or career-long fascination with leadership, it, it, it started in no small part with YPO. YPO is a young president's organization. It was a global organization. And when I got into it, I was very intimidated. There were some really big names in uh, Massimo Ferragamo and William Lauder and Tony Malkin, whose family owns the Empire State, big, big names. And what was I doing at that table? Uh, that's where I started in YPO. They invited me. They asked me to be in. I didn't think I deserved to be in the room. That room, I ended up a decade uh, running. I was the, the, the chairman in New York City. Uh, my board was a who's who of, you know, last names that you would know. Uh, I had a seat uh, on the global board, uh, you know, around the world. And uh, Leadership Secrets, which was my biggest book, or at least sales-wise, was because I wanted to understand what is it? Why are some people so successful at leading and others aren't? Why, why is that elusive? There's got to be a formula. Um, and what I found, uh, that particular book, which ends up called Down, we, in, we ended up, we interviewed 140 people, or I interviewed 140 people. I uh, cut it down to 100 people. Uh, all, all powerful, successful, well-known, big-name leaders running. I mean, their corporations are like zip codes or countries unto themselves. Hundreds of thousands of people under their purview. And uh, I, would, I asked them the same, all of them, I asked them the same four questions. And every chapter was based on those four questions. And then it had to go through, you know, all sorts of uh, you know, their, their own legal department. So everything got a little bit rewritten. But it was fascinating to me to be in the presence of historical uh, uh, greatness, um, leaders who had this incredible influence and were willing to talk to me and spend, I, I could go to have dinner at their house, see how they live, be inside of their lives. And, you know, my net takeaway from all of my exposure to the greatest leaders, this, is include, this includes presidents, it includes kings, it includes, you know, chairmen of the largest corporations, you know, in the world, is uh, leadership is in, in part learned, um, and it's in part instinctual. And one of the things that, uh, you know, it, growing up as a kid, I'm, 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 and I do a lot of business, or a lot of work in sports, and in, in football in particular, but with the biggest names in, you know, in the game is, uh, and we got to see this for better or for worse in the pandemic. Every, nobody got a chance to plan, you know, how, how, how do I want you to see me today? I had to react. I don't mean I, I mean everybody. And instinctually you could see who people were. It's in, in the most extraordinary situations. I, I, I was in a previous life and my agency known for my crisis work. If there was a fire, you absolutely want to, you walk in the middle of that fire with me, every single solitary time, we all walk out unscathed, nobody gets burned, always with me. 
Um, and that's what I was known for. It, it, in the good old days, although I would say that people still know, would say that about me today. I mean, the, the article in Forbes that I referenced is about the G7 uh, summit. Um, but, you know, the, my instincts, I want, I was a point guard in, on, on a basketball team growing up. Uh, I, I ran the offense. I wasn't the best player on the team. I wasn't even close to the best player on the team, but I was good at orchestrating everybody into, into being a team and we were better because of it. I'm still a point guard. That's literally what I still do to this very day. I, I am definitely, if I'm not the dumbest one in the room, I'm in the wrong room every single solitary day. I surround myself by greatness. Every kid or, or adult, they would beg to differ. They, they think they're adults. Until you're 40, I have, meh. And the first 50 years were the hardest for me, definitely. After that, it's been great. Um, uh, what they do, I get all the credit. I'm the guy who's in the news all the time. It's them. It's not me. Uh, what my people do for me is they teach me every single solitary day. And it is one of the reasons that I am still very relevant in my own industry as a 60-year-old. I'm, uh, I'm still... I, I, I don't know, one of, the, one of the more well-known people in my industry, not because of me, is because of all the people that work for me. And, uh, you know, I checked my ego at the door a long time ago. Um, uh, uh, the people that I'm with on an ongoing basis, from fame to fortune, uh, we all just want the same. I just want to have, you know, my heat work in the winter and I want a bed to sleep on and I want to be able to fill up my gas tank. Same as everybody else. At the end of the day, we're all going to the same place anyway. Um, uh, if you treat people accordingly, if you have empathy, if you have the ability to see life through the lens of the person that you're talking to, you have a much more constructive and productive relationship. And, you know, I, 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 I do believe that uh, in the pandemic, we got to see genuine leadership. And for me, because um, I went viral in the pandemic, <laughs> Actually, that article hanging on the wall behind me is a, a cover story in Entrepreneur Magazine. Um, ironically, I spent my entire life crafting my, my success stories, which are, you know, a, a plenty. My health and fitness regimen, a plenty. I mean, I can go on and on. Not being the sick guy in bed, um, which is what that picture is, that ran all over the world. And the sick guy in bed, and I was very sick for 89 days. I was in bed. I, uh, I was on oxygen for 60. I, uh, I had COVID bad back in March when you know, I was an early adopter to that too. Uh, I thought it was incumbent on me. And this is just instinctual. It has nothing to do with, I didn't expect it to become some viral press phenomenon. I wanted to give people hope in a world that was losing hope. People were afraid. And I, I, I go back to a 1969 uh, testimony before Congress by Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. Uh, Mr. Rogers, who and maybe many of your listeners won't even know who Mr. Rogers is anymore. Um, Mr. Rogers is the reason he had a very successful uh, television show on PBS. He's the reason that there is a PBS. Um, and I was never a fan of, as a kid, because I grew up on, you know, Mr. Rogers and Captain Kangaroo and all sorts of things that I can really date myself with here. But uh, when he testified before Congress, because they wanted to raise money to fund PBS, uh, his testimony was so striking to me. One of the things that he said was, uh, in, in, in times of uh, difficulty, if you look for the helpers, you'll know there's hope. 
if you know there's hope, the day's definitely better. I, I just wanted, I wanted to provide people with hope. I wanted everybody, I, I knew I was going to survive COVID for no other reason than that's me. I know that uh, in my life, everything always works out. It always does. I count on that. It, and it, uh, I'm a repeat offender and it always works out, including with an illness that I ha absolutely had no control over. And people, it, it resonated with people. Uh, I was viewed as a helper while I was laying in bed with a piece of cardboard. But, you know, I, I always say to people, you, you want to figure out your life, figure out what your worst day was. That, you know, that was actually your best day. That's the, that, that, that's the day that changed you. And, you know, if you're feeling like there's no way, I thought in the last year and a half, if you're feeling like there's no way, this would be a really good time to make one. And, the whole magic of life is, you know, how do you enjoy the space between where you are and wherever you might be going? Because, you know, the, the, there's this illusion of control that we'd all love to have. There, it's an illusion. We don't have, I have no control over my, I got control over this particular moment. And damn, if it's not a great moment, I'm getting every single solitary one of them. And it, I'm not saying that to be rah-rah or give a pep talk to anybody. It is how I live my life. I get 84,600 seconds in a day. So do you. You pick what you want to do with them. I'm getting all of them. I am maxing out on my moments. And, you know, uh, that resonates with people. We all worry about all sorts of things that never happen. Um, and we forget about the moment that we're in. And that's really life-changing for me. And I think this authenticity and, and the focus is really important. And I understand that. I'm sorry to hear about uh, your, your, your challenge with COVID because a lot of people... Oh, it's not a challenge. It was a... Uh, honestly, the book that I'm writing right now is called The Audacity of Silver Linings. Uh, it come out a year from January. That was the greatest silver lining of my entire life. That gave me, refreshed my perspective on breathing. Very underrated. <laughs> Very under... If you're breathing right now, very underrated. That uh, perspective, that refresher, I'd do it all again. No, it's really very special. So, so that brings me to one point, and you touched the importance of authenticity and trust and as well faith on this thing. So um, one of the things that brought us at least uh, to this interview, although uh, we're talking about broader than this, was um, something that you're reflecting about uh, the, the issues with the brand authenticity and as well our brands are looking at uh, initiatives like pride and it's a wave that everyone kind of wants to get in the wave because it's politically correct but it brings a lot of things and i think uh, you mentioned in particular the challenges um addressing um a lot of major brands that are right now putting in their logos all these things related with uh, okay being very uh, pride friendly, gay friendly, whatever, but with most of them, of course, they have an history quite tricky and to say less. So how do you see this, especially with your expertise in both leadership and PR, but as well, this shows the complexity of the world that, uh, that we live in. So I would like to hear your views on this. Well, yeah, I mean, look, everybody's throwing a rainbow onto their logo now, as if that's doing something. If it, throw a rainbow onto your logo, but give money to the politician who uh, has a completely contrary point of view. Is, how authentic is that? How genuine is that? Um, and look, it's, it, it, that's complicated. It's like me saying, you know, I'm, uh, I pay for a loaf of bread. The guy who 
made a loaf of bread as a jerk and I'm supporting the jerk who has different points of view about me. Am I not going to buy the bread? Like, uh, I like bread in my sandwich. Um, it's complicated. It's not, it's, it, this is not a simple issue, but I, I, I do believe that uh, transparency, authenticity um, it, you, you, is important. Um, you can't say one thing and do another. It's literally like parenting. Nothing I ever said, I, I did not tell my children one thing. I didn't give them one, nothing came out of my mouth that was a rule, that was a good idea, that they did. What they did is they mimicked me and my behavior. I live, they live, surprise. Um, it's, you know, it, it is not do as I you know, say, it's do as I do. So it's the same for corporate America. And corporate America is complicated because it's easy for one parent to say, do as I do. Not as I say, as I do. Because if I say it, but I don't do it, it doesn't really, it's not nearly as influential. It's not nearly as impactful. It doesn't actually make a difference. In today's society, uh, you know, especially with social media, um, you better be genuine. And, and if you're not, because look, we have a lot to learn. I've, I, I, every single solitary, I wake up curious. I want to learn every single day. And oh, I figure out how much I don't know this morning. And there's no morning that I wouldn't say that. It's, you can be uh, politically correct, unpolitically correct, right, wrong. Learn, listen, try to see life through other people's lenses. And if you're not doing that, then you're being disingenuous to your rainbow that you're throwing on your logo. Uh, while you're giving money in the other pocket, uh, you know, to contrary uh, politicians, just as an example. And, and I think, uh, because this is a big, big thing, because this problem, and I think it's, it's a quite a sensitive task, because in one end it's about authenticity, it's about leadership, but it's about shows the complexity, especially with what is been happening in the United States, of the complexity of the way people are doing because the country is very divided in particular but the big global brands right now are in one end very nervous to be on the waves because of course if you if you get even if it's a small vertical or a big vertical of society that is very outspoken it can actually backfire to you but at the same time they have to keep moving this so from your leadership perspective i'm particularly interested on that and your experience working on these brands what would be the example that or at least the the guidelines that you give to startups or, or to leaders that want to learn how to cope with this? Because I think that's a lot of the things you've been doing is about teaching and educating and learning as well with these people. So how do you look at this? Because in the end of the day, I think the challenge is, okay, how can we do better and avoid these mistakes? Um, yeah, if you, if you walk into the same room I do and you're the dumbest one in the room like I always am, you're, you, you're definitely in the right room and you're definitely gonna learn if you listen. Um, and I promise if you listen, you will learn. It doesn't matter who I'm ever with, it, you know, ever. It doesn't matter. I'm very interested in learning. And uh, you got to check your ego at the door. Check your IQ at the door because it actually doesn't matter. When I say I'm the dumbest one in the room, it doesn't mean I'm not, you know, I don't have a, a, a decent IQ. Um, it, obviously, something I've done in my career has would be indicative of, a bright guy. Uh, however, uh, I do believe that I have so much more to learn. Uh, the older I get, the less I know. Um, the world's changing rapidly. And be who you are. Be who you, you be you, I'm gonna be me. 
And I'm going to be transparently me. And transparently me is a guy who has a lot to learn. I, I, I don't want to impart my values on anybody else. That's up to each individual to decide. But I do believe that it's uh, not a bad uh, thought to consider that you still have a lot to learn. And yeah, I live in a very polarized country. Um, uh, we're, we're, we're all so busy fighting amongst ourselves that uh, it's, a lot of time is being lost while we do that. And uh, I care about my neighbor. That's it. I care about my neighbor. Um, whether it's my next door neighbor or somebody in another state or in the South or in the West, it doesn't matter. I care. Um, and, you know, I think the world could use a lot more of that. And I think we would all get along a lot better. And personally, um, I, look, I was, I'm, I'm a, a liberal Democrat who was on Fox News for a decade. A liberal Democrat on Fox News for a, on air for a decade. Do you know how, um, I'll, I'll call it intellectual friction, um, on live television uh, with my friends. They had a different point of view. I always felt like intelligent people, we can rub each other together, both of our very different intellects and come up with greater answers. And I felt like I, uh, uh, we did that live on air on a network that would really frown on my, my own politics. Um, and I was there for 10 years and I, uh, no matter what you say about all of the networks, and I do them all, um, having both voices at the table and the ability to have some uh, intellectual exchange that might not be the same, uh, uh, coming from the same place is so important. Uh, hating each other, the violence in this country, the social unrest in this country, it's, it's you know, for me, it's very sad to see. I, I, I think the, the world has a long way to go. The United States certainly does. Completely with you, and then it's it's not easy. But I think I think like you said, and I think your example of being in a platform that might be not political related with some of your views, but as well keeping a voice, it's probably the most important thing. So I know that we're passing one hour, and you have as well other things. So I would like to have a second take on this interview, but still I want one last question because definitely I want a second take on this. So I'm actually the next one with more time, both of you. Uh, so the, the question last is, so you, you, you mentioned about your next book, The Audacity of Silver Line. It's a beautiful title, by the way, and The Scent of Optimism. So I think it's, I, I'm always, although I'm very critical, and always like to do a little different things, but uh, can you tell us about The Scent of Optimism and uh, The Audacity of Silver Linings? Uh, it's yeah, really I mean, very poetic. you know, it's all, it, it's all a matter of perspective. And this is not, you know, I wasn't born this way. It's not, I, I wasn't born, you know, optimistic. I don't have that gene. Um, I've learned uh, uh, through, you know, a lot of trial and error and a lot of, you know, difficult life circumstances. I, I, I literally wake up grateful. That's my perspective. Like I'm breathing. Who knew? Uh, it, and if you are, same goes for you. And I, I, I so strongly believe I, I do have a platform. People are interested to hear what I have to say. I think it's so, I think it's leadership's role, and I know this does not happen all over the world, to not to spread calm, not chaos. And I do think that people follow the leader. And if the leader is calm and the leader is optimistic and it's not bullshit, if it's real, it's contagious, just like that virus was. Same thing. Um, and, you know, the audacity of silver linings is just it, it literally the way that I look at 
so many things in my life, including really horrific and difficult September 11th, all sorts of difficult things in my life. What did I learn from them? Because that's where you learn. You're, what, what, I started off the interview saying, what, whatever you say was your worst day actually was your best day. That's the day that you learn something, if you chose to. So you do have a choice. Every single solitary moment of the day, and this is what my book's about, you have a choice at how you're going to view this particular moment. You can look at it. You know, people say, is the glass half full? Is the glass half empty? I say, shit, just refill the glass. What's the question all about? Uh, I'm going to, we only get to live once. That's it. One time, one go around. All of us were literally the same that way. You pick. How do you want to do it? You want to have, have a good time? You want to have a lousy time? You want to look at the glass one way or the other? It's totally your choice. My choice is I'm getting the minute. I'm getting the moment that I'm in. I'm not missing any. It's a limited offer for all of us. That's what my book's about. It's uh, fantastic. So, so I, I recommend everyone to go to Eric's uh, uh, website and we'll put all the links. So this is the first one, but definitely, Eric, I would come back and I would like to focus the next one about each of your books and as well talk more about uh, some of the topics related in, in it, some of the areas that are in your books, but as well as the areas of your expertise. I, I, so I would love to. I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing. No, no, the, the pleasure is all me. I'm a huge fan of your work and, uh, and I think uh, definitely I think this will be the first one of others. Thank ah, you so much, Eric. Well, look forward to talking again.